Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here, Dimitri. Let me ask you a question. Why is true crime as a genre, podcast, book, movies, why has it become so popular for the last few years? You know, I'm not the guru of true crime, but maybe, maybe it's like within us, we're all, I mean, even the most law-abiding citizens among us, and I'm not, I'm not a natural-born criminal, but I just think if we're being honest with ourselves, we're kind of curious at how the bad boys and bad girls get away with what they do. And I think it's a, a natural human curiosity. And I almost think that people who pretend not to be interested in that are secretly actually interested. And I think it's not something that's, you know, we're just curious about how the scallywags and the rule breakers get away with it or don't and how they get the, how they get caught. I, I, you know, and I'm not afraid to be completely open that, yeah, it fascinates me too. And, uh, you know, I think that that's just something writ on our DNA as humans. We kind of want to know how people get away with what they do. Now, let's talk about your newest book. Tell me about the art. Uh, What's the book about? How did it come to be? Thank you for asking that. So I am, uh, if anything, kind of an inefficient writer, but the art thief really grabbed me. Let's let's go with three reasons. First of all, the book is about a man named Stefan Breitweiser. He's French from the Alsace region of France, which is in the northwest corner where Germany, Switzerland, and France meet up. Now, really quickly, humans have been humans. Museums have been open. Public museums have existed for about 300 years. And I pretty much spent the whole pandemic reading about every art thief I could ever find. So the second most prolific art thief that I could find outside of war, not counting armies like the Nazis and things like that, but just thieves stole from 19, that's one nine different museums. But the guy I wrote about, Stefan Breitweiser, in this book, stole from 201 different places. So there's really nobody in all of history that has been that prolific. But that's not really the reason why I was interested in him. It's how he stole, which was nonviolently during the day, sometimes with guards and other tourists in the room. He had this, what he called invisible style, which is like makes you, allows you to root for the anti-hero. But it's not even the style or the number that really grabbed my obsession, my obsession, it was the reason why he stole, unlike almost every other real art thief, he stole as much as $2 billion worth of art just to look at it, to put it up in his house, to love it, not to try and sell it. And it was this combination of like the love and aesthetic desire that really, along with the, you know, the nonviolence and the sheer quantity that just grabbed, I mean, it's journalistic catnip. Who wouldn't want to be, who wouldn't want to read more about this guy? And he gave me exclusive interviews. So uh, uh, it was like, uh, it got all my journalistic senses buzzing on maximum. How unique is that? Most art thieves, most thieves in general steal for money, right? Uh, this guy did not. How weird is that? You've done research as to a plethora of art thieves, uh, right. I presume in anticipation of writing this book. Right. I think to meet you that most of the people uh, watching this were, you know, when I say think about an art thief, a lot of people think of somebody, maybe Thomas Crown Affair or Ocean's Eleven. Those, by the way, are fictitious art thieves. Those are not real art thieves. Uh, fewer than one in a thousand actual art thieves steal for anything other than money. I mean, I think the most famous 
real theft that people know about is Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum uh, in Boston in 1990, where two men stole about half a billion dollars worth of goods. Well, Breitweiser not only hated those thieves, he said to me he didn't even like being called an art thief. Those Isabella Stewart guys, they came at night, they attacked the night guards, they bound their face with duct tape, they handcuffed them to pipes in the basement. And not even that is really the worst thing they did. Then they marched up to a magnificent Rembrandt seascape, and one of the guys stuck a knife right in the canvas and ripped it out of its frame. That killed Breitweiser. He was always so careful about the pieces he stole. And so if he didn't want to be called an art thief, I asked him, I said, well, what do you want to be called, Breitweiser? And he said to me, he wanted to be called a collector with an unorthodox acquisition style. That's what he wanted to be called. So, uh, yeah, he's completely an outlier in so many different ways, as you mentioned. What in his background do you think, after conducting all this research about him, led him down this path? I'm very briefly. So Breitweiser grew up in a fairly well-to-do family. His father had collections of oil paintings, ivory sculptures, antique weaponry. And these things, both of his, both his mom and his dad said that he was in love with these objects as a young boy. His parents had a really contentious divorce when Breitweiser was a teenager. The father took all of his collectibles with him, which he had inherited. And Breitweiser cut off all contact with his father, moved in with his mother into a small house with no artwork on the walls. And as the, at the same time that his father left, he met a girl. Her name was Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus. She had had no criminal record, but something about the two of them. I mean, they were certainly had an unhealthy relationship, but at the, on the other hand, they were truly in love with each other. And you, if, if you've ever been in love, you know it can make you do crazy things. And there was something about Anne-Catherine and Stefan Breitweiser that formed this incredible, unstoppable, historically unprecedented thieving duo. And uh, Breitweiser said at first, it was to replace the things that his father had taken in the divorce. That's what he said. Now, listen, I have a good BS detector in my head. I, or I, I think I do as a journalist. You know, there are plenty of people that are children of divorce that don't resort to stealing. And so I, while the first couple of items he stole were sort of, as Breitweiser himself told me, things that his father might have owned, but way better and way more valuable, after just a couple of thefts, he had already surpassed his father's collection by huge amounts. In fact, like I think I mentioned that the, the total uh, estimated total of all the works he stole was as much as $2 billion. So he used that as a sort of excuse, but really between me and you and your listeners, um, I don't really buy that. I think he was sort of a, he, I think he loved the artwork as I, I don't think that's questionable, but I'll, that could be questioned. But I also think he loved to steal, especially with his girlfriend. So uh, the father and the divorce thing, I'm happy to talk about that. But it's really, I believe, just a crutch. The real reason is he was just an amazingly good art thief. And he freaking loved the pieces he stole. You know, it's so funny because here in the U.S., when we arrest people, sentence them, punish them, we do that so as to try to rehabilitate them, right? To reintegrate them into society in, in a more effective way. Now, if you have a criminal that steals for money, then you know how to rehabilitate that person. At least there's an underlying reason that has to be addressed. 
Here, rehabilitation would seem difficult because the reason underlying these crimes was not motivated by money. What's your position on that? I, I, well, you've opened up a lot of lines of questioning. I'll just, <laughs> this is actually, it's actually a great question. I think for the moment, we'll set aside how rehabilitative actually the U.S. penal system is. I, uh, I think, I think just looking at your face, I think we agree that that could be up for debate. Uh, in fact, you know, I, you know, I spend a lot of time writing about criminals. It sometimes seems that the more pe person spends in jail, the more they learn about how to commit other crimes. But let's put that to the side. I think you're right. Breitweiser stole for love, and after 201 thefts, as is clear, eventually his his run came to an end. You know, it's like an any Icarus story. The high, the closer you fly to the sun, the more risks you take, the harder your crash is going to be. But you're right. I think you touched on something interesting. Since Breitweiser stole out of this really unusual sense of aesthetics and attraction, um, and without giving away too much in the book, I will say to you that he has proved to be un, is this a word, unrehabilitatable? He hasn't been able to be rehabilitated. He, is, uh, this again, this, you know, we'll jump to the end of the book without giving some interesting middle things away. But every time he's been released from jail, he says he says he feels the same thing. Man, the walls of my apartment or my house or the thing I'm renting just don't look good. And he finds himself driving past a museum and, you know, he's in his fifties now. I mean, as am I, but really he realizes that he's only good at one thing that's stealing art and he can't, I mean, I'm not giving him any excuses. I'm not even sure if I like the guy, he's sort of impressive, but he's also, also de depressive at the same time, but he keeps stealing works of art. And so I think you're right when, when love is the motivation, it's um, you can't just like say, oh, I'm not going to love this woman anymore. I'm not going to love sunsets anymore. That's it for sunsets. Next time I see one, I'm not going to love it. You know, you, 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 the thing that are, that's wonderful about human emotions is also inextricably linked with what's like frustrating about it is that you almost have no control over them. I mean, that's great because who wouldn't fall crazily in love if we could control it. But, uh, it, you know, it also, as you hinted, it also has really doomed Brightweiser to like this life of being in and out of prison. About your book, Bloomberg wrote, it is romantic to lighten art thieves to Piers Brosnan's glamorous character in the Thomas Crown Affair. The reality is far less charming. Do you agree with that? Yes, I mean, so the Thomas Crown Affair, as great as that movie is, in fact, this is funny, uh, Brightweiser himself, who I told you, does not like being called an art thief. He said that his favorite movie or novel or anything that depicted an art thief fictitiously, that was his very favorite one, The Thomas Crown Affair with Pierce Brosnan. Um, yes, of course, in rea uh, we would all love to be charming like Pierce Brosnan, but in, in truth, although I have like a grin on my face and when I talk about Breitweiser's crimes, I can't help but have some vein of being impressed or like, wow. I mean, listen, when my wife and I go to a, go to a museum, <laughs> We have this like running joke, and I bet a lot of people uh, watching this do, do too. We see something that we love, and I always turn to Jill, my wife, and I'm like, wouldn't that look great over the fireplace? You know, it's sort of like a running joke, and but we're not, you know, we mean it. It, it would look great over the fireplace. And then, of course, we let that joke go right through our heads and out the door. You know, it's like that's, but Brightweiser actually acted on that, and where the difference between someone charming like Pierce 
Brosnan that's fictitious. Well, what, what Breitweiser did was all the rest of us are victims. He basically was a cancer on modern society. The thing about museums, like, listen, I think you and I could probably talk about the problems of modern life from now until like next summer. But one of the things that is not a problem, one of the great goods of modern society is that me, I'm not a billionaire. You, as nice as your office looks, I'm assuming you're not a billionaire. Um, you can't, you have the ability to go see the Mona Lisa, the most valuable and amazing works of art on this planet. And really, before the age of enlightenment, only rich people could see art. Now we all can see it. But a museum, as you know, does not put its paintings behind bars. There's not dudes with Uzis there. That would be a bank. A museum allows you to commune with a work of art, not as great as sitting on a couch with a glass of wine, but better than not seeing it. And Breitweiser abused this public trust. If, if there were more people like Breitweiser, there would be no more museums. And so he really like, he really ruined it. He's really ruining things for the rest of us. And so that's where everything sort of turns sour and non um, Thomas Crown affairish to make up a new word. Was Breitweiser a genius? I mean, I don't like to use that word lightly, but um, uh, this is something that's so my short answer to you although all my other answers seem to have been quite long-winded here, but you could tell I'm excited about this topic. I'm thinking, yes. <laughs> he was a genius at, like, I would say stealing art because he, you know, if I was planning an art heist, I'm not planning an art heist, but if I was, I think I would spend months scouting a museum and like seeing where all the guards are and maybe like, you know, where do all the air conditioning ducts lead? There, there have been art heists that have been planned for years and years. Breitweiser, his genius, I think, was not just in making crime spontaneous. Let me just mention for a second. Let's just talk about, if you want to just talk about genius and theft, for seven years from the late 90s to the mid 2000s, Breitweiser, accompanied by his girlfriend, Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus, averaged one art theft every 12 days for seven years and didn't get caught during this streak. Uh, so he yeah, was a genius at sort of just knowing not just the limits of, like, say, a security camera, which isn't that hard, but also sort of the limits of human observation and distraction. He literally stole... When people were in a room, he could tell people were listening to, you know, those earphones that you sometimes get in a museum. And it's so funny. I went to a few museums with Breitweiser. Yeah, I actually went into museums with the world's greatest art thief. By the way, I was always wondering what I would do if he actually stole something. And I'm happy to report I didn't have to face that moral dilemma. But he would show me like, look at the guard in the room. And I have a photo of this that I that's indel and it's indelibly as my etched in my mind. We're in a room with objects worth millions and millions of dollars that you can basically touch because a museum, it's you right in front of you. And this guard was just looking at her telephone the entire time and Breitweiser whispered in my ear. I was thinking, no, don't steal it. Don't say it. He's like, this would be so easy to steal anything right with this guard in the room. Just look, she's not even looking. And he's right. So genius at sort of reading like an, a thin opening, a chance to steal. Like I would mess it all up. I would drop, I would drop my screwdriver. I would just get nervous and start sweating. And then I would run. He just was able to have that, what they call in French, sang-froid, cold-bloodedness, daring, all the things that package together, I would say a genius thief. Not to give too much away in the book. How did law enforcement react to this? What efforts did they undertake? 
Um, what did they do to combat this guy? Right. So, yeah, basically you're asking, like, how do you get away with 201 crimes without getting caught? I mean, no matter how genius the theft you are, that is an insane number. So very briefly, there are 20 different countries that have police forces dedicated to stolen art and cultural um, treasures, antiques and things like that, including the United States, which has the FBI's art crime team, 20 full-time FBI agents, and they even do a 10 most wanted list of stolen art each month, each week. Um, the reason why Breitweiser did not get caught is that almost all of these police forces in 20 different countries, they are looking like 999 out of a thousand real art thieves, they're looking for when the thief tries to monetize their loot. And that is either they sell it to a crooked collector. Yeah, there's a lot of crooked collectors, crooked dealers. You shouldn't be surprised to hear that. Or try and sneak it through a minor auction. And this is really what the police search for. These, these transactions, these hinges where art exchanges hands. And they, if you're not busted right in a museum and not too many people are, that's where you get busted trying to sell it. Like if I tried to sell it to a what I thought was a crooked collector, it's often an undercover cop. So these police, well aware that somebody, a couple of, you know, lots of witnesses saw this young couple, but they really couldn't get their faces on video because Breitweiser, as I mentioned, had that genius ability to look at every camera in every room and sort of be able to skirt the edges of these cameras, never got a great picture of his face. Uh, the police were waiting for a transaction, a sale that just never came we can talk about where he what he actually did with all this stuff but that's the reason why i was able to get away with it for so long because he just kept the works for his own pleasure how big was his apartment his house uh where he kept this stuff okay so where did he put so he stole 201 times and often he stole more than one work of art i think i counted on my list after working on this for <laughs> 11 years 320 different works of art and after the divorce he moved in with his mother. His mother bought this tiny house in the suburbs of a sort of an industrial, not very beautiful city in northern France. I mean, France is so beautiful. I lived there for seven years. Breitweiser and I spoke to each other in French. I have a terrible accent, but, you know, that was his native language. And I was the first American he ever spoke with. He didn't really like speaking to journalists. But he, his mother lived on the ground floor, and there was this just narrow wooden staircase that came up to this closed door and you open this door with just two attic rooms now attic rooms that have a low slanted ceiling in the middle of these two rooms i want everyone to imagine this because it is like the greatest thing i've ever seen i've seen some home video he had this beautiful antique four poster bed and surrounding this at the height of its glory on the walls on the desks his armoire just everywhere around it was like living inside a treasure chest he displayed all 300 plus works of art worth possibly two billion dollars but again it wasn't to sell them he said he monitored humidity and light and dust and spent almost he was he was unemployed really full-time job was a art thief but that's in other words he was a unemployed freeloader living in his mother's attic but he had a it was like a treasure chest and I actually got to see some of Breitweiser's home videos where he sort of pans around the room. And I got to tell you, Dimitri, just to spend one night in a room like that just gives me goosebumps. It's like he said it was the most magnificent. Like he said to me, even though he's so broke, by the way, that he avoided paying highway tolls on his getaway drives. That's how broke he was. But yet he told me that to him, 
you know, as much if, if you hate Breitweiser or you are impressed by him, it's really hard to deny that he really, he really truly had an aesthetic sense. He loved the works he stole, which was mostly 16th and 17th century paintings and items. Uh, he said that he thought that beauty was the true currency of the world, that that was what he, he measured himself on. And so despite the fact that he literally didn't even have 20 euros to buy gas sometimes, I had to spot him money to give him gas money, um, he thought he was the richest person in the world. And looking at the videos and the walls of his room, I sort of, in this bizarre fantasy that I live in my head, like when I tell my wife we should put this painting in a museum over our, over our mantle, uh, in this fantasy, I sort of agree with Breitweiser. He was for just a, a few fantastic years, maybe the richest person in the world. If beauty is your, if beauty is your measuring stick. So, uh, you know, it's hard. It's, I, I love, I love a, I love a character in which you can both be disgusted and amazed at the same time. Those are the books that I like to read. And those are the books that I try and write. You know, I don't tell the reader how to feel about Stefan Breitweiser. I try to be like, Here's all the facts. I'm not avoiding the ugly and I'm not avoiding the great. And then you decide how you feel about them. In fact, feel free to go to my website, mikefinkel.com and let me know how you feel. I'm always interested in how readers feel about uh, Brightweiser. Whether you hate him or you sort of secretly love him, you're not wrong. And, and that's what I like about uh, a character like, like Brightweiser. You know, that's a perfect transition about your other works. I'd like to touch upon some of your other works, at least briefly, and I'd like to talk to you a bit about True Story. What was it like watching your work turn to film? What was it like working with two Hollywood megastars like Jonah Hill, James Franco? So really briefly, in case people don't know, so my first uh, true crime book, sort of, I didn't actually find the story. It found me just very briefly, and I know this always like, it opens up like the can of questions, but a person who murdered four people, not just four people, his wife and three children fled to Mexico from Oregon in the Western United States, fled to Mexico and told everyone his name was Michael Finkel and he worked for the New York Times and my name is Mike Finkel and I did work for the New York Times. So I had this bizarre connection with a murderer after he was arrested and brought back to the United States. The only person that he would speak to, the fake Mike Finkel, his real name is Christian Longo, would only talk to the real Mike Finkel. Uh, you know, I've really compressed like a whole head exploding like plot into a couple of seconds there. So I spent a year talking with this guy who told me he was innocent. I said, as is our as is our right, you know, innocent until proven guilty, prove to me that you're innocent, went to trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. So that's the that's the compressed version. And I know your I know your watchers are like, what, what, what? But a movie was made out of it, also called True Story. And James Franco played the murderer Christian Longo, and Jonah Hill played the journalist Mike Finkel. Uh, and um, I really like, love both of those actors. They're really sharp. Um, but because the material was so personal to me. And so creepy to me, um, as my wife pointed out, you know, this is a person who killed his wife and three children. I have a wife and three children. So to answer your question, and I don't, I don't want to waste anyone's time being dishonest. It was an honor to be played by Jonah Hill and to see James Franco do it. But it, the material was so close to home that I, the first time I watched that movie, like my hands were over my eyes and I was just sort of watching through the slits of my fingers because it was like, it was too overwhelming. I just remember like, so it's like my head was like, 
I think brain matter was just leaking out of my ears because like, so a murderer took on my identity, but then Jonah Hill was, you know, so the, then the James Franco's playing the murderer who's taking on my identity. And then it was like Jonah Hill was like playing me and every, it was like this big onion that I was trying to uh, peel and all these layers of truth and fiction were sort of combining in my head. And so um, I think unlike anybody else who watches that movie, I was just like, uh, I was so weirdly uncomfortable watching it, but I think you can imagine that too. So uh, that's a long-winded answer, but uh, that's what I got to say. You asked a complicated question, so that's what you get, Dimitri. It's your fault for my long-windedness. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. After true story, you wrote a book called Stranger in the Woods, a real unique story. Tell me about Stranger in the Woods. Yeah, I don't know what it is about me and just like completely outlier people, but I, I think... I really like talking to very strange folk. I don't really want to do any more murderers. Like, uh, so my next book, The Stranger in the Woods, is about a man from the Maine who lived all by himself in the woods for 27 years. That's more than a quarter century from when he was 20 years old to when he was 47 years old. The whole heart of his life was living, camping in the woods. Now, he was also hyper intelligent, read thousands of books, but to, for everything, for every bit of food, clothing, and all those dang books, everything but his eyeglasses, including his underwear, he stole everything from cabins around these lakes in central Maine. And so once again, like Brightweiser in The Art Thief, we have a person who you could be like, I'm disgusted by that guy. He should get a job. He, you know, He's stealing from people. But on the other hand, he really... You could say he was on the spectrum, like an Asperger or an autism spectrum. He said he, all his life, he only could find contentment by being alone. And so he sort of figured out what made him happy. And so you could also, I don't know, personally, my heart often breaks for Chris Knight, the hermit who lived for 27 years. But again, as I mentioned, it's one of those people that all shades of gray. This is not, this is not Hitler. This is not Mother Teresa. It's like in that vast vast chasm between and again i tried to write the stranger in the woods about the hermit like in a way that you could you the reader i really like the people that read books like mine where they're they're intelligent they're my my readers are smart they get to decide whether or not this is someone to admire or to or to hate or sometimes depending upon what chapter you're on feel like both of those things and decide where the scale lands at the end so uh, you know again i just sort of look for these like I, I think we said at the very beginning we talked about what fascinates us about true crime and i told you i don't pretend to be holier than thou or too cool to be interested in criminals i just go with my feelings and and, and all three of my books have sort of re reflected that so what's next mike well, yeah, thank you for asking. <laughs> I'm sure no one who's been listening to me babble for the last half hour is going to be surprised that it's another very much Shades of Grey character. I'm working on a story about someone who was involved in a horrifically violent crime and then hijacked an airplane in the 1970s. This is not D.B. Cooper, but like that. Hijacked an airplane. And by the way, I just wanted to tell everyone that everything that I've been talking about tonight, the murderer that took on my identity, the guy who spent 27 years in the woods, the art thief who stole from 201 museums, and now this story about the hijacker, is not. this is not based on a true story. This is not 99% true. These are 
100% true, heavily fact-checked works of reportage. I'm a journalist. I'm not a novelist. These are true stories. If you if you're thinking, I can't believe that story, I'm like, exactly. I can't believe it either. I look for something that truly impersonates, embodies the cliche, the truth is stranger than fiction. So I'm doing a story about a guy who uh, hijacked a plane, got a million, literally got a million dollars in a suitcase, which you think is something only from the movies, but there's there's old news footage of this, and then disappeared for 40 years. And like, as if trying to make up for his misspent youth, like was started like inner city youth basketball leagues, like really volunteered and was found in Portugal 40 years later and has agreed to speak with me. And so it's a book about one man's life, but also asking the question, is redemption possible? Is this guy BSing us all? And so asking some of those larger questions that once again, Dimitri, I'm sure you won't be surprised. I don't know what the answer is, but I hope my smart readers are gonna tell me what they think. Mike, you're a unique person. Your books obviously are unique, but they're terrific. Everybody loves them, I love them. I appreciate the time, thank you so much. Ah, oh, thank you. I really enjoy speaking with you. And let's do it again for the uh, hijacker when that book comes out.